Romans 1, 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with, one, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to ECC. I said that last week, and uh, the reason I said it is because a lot of new people are in town. Uh, so I reiterated this week, really, welcome to ECC. I said last week, there's a couple of things that characterize us here. There's lots of things, but I just mentioned three. One, we stand under the authority of the Word of God uh, unequivocally. When I get up here and preach on Sunday morning, I'm talking about the Word of God. Otherwise, I wouldn't stand up and talk because you don't need to hear from me. Uh, the second is this. Uh, we don't have all the answers concerning the Word of God. We differ, differ on our opinions, interpretations of the Word of God. There's plenty of people who will disagree with what I say on any given Sunday morning concerning the Word of God. But in spite of the fact that it's difficult to interpret Scripture and it's difficult to address difficult questions, we refuse to ignore them. If the questions are difficult, we will wrestle with them. Thus, a text like this morning. I wish I could have just skipped a chapter two, but I didn't feel the freedom to do that. Final thing is this. At ECC, we do all of this in community, right? We do it together. When we fail to make a commitment to one another in conversations, controversial, difficult questions, we fail the body of Christ. So stay with us, okay? Through all the conversations in community because that's how we learn. To begin with, uh, I want to remind us of something, that in order to interpret any passage, no matter what the passage is, it's important to be aware, if you can be aware, and sometimes you can't be, to be aware of who the author of the passage is, 
and who the audience is that the author was addressing and major theme or themes of the passage. So let's remind ourselves of something. The author of this passage is the Apostle Paul. The audience is a very, 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 very small minority of people in the Roman Empire. Probably mostly Jewish who believe or are becoming convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but also Gentiles who are believing the same thing. That small Christian community is the community he's speaking into. And when he begins this conversation in the book of Romans, as you noted last week, here's the major theme, at least through at least the first six chapters. The major theme is this. The bad news is sin. The good news is grace. That's just a good summary of what we're about to see here and in the chapters beyond it. By the way, that's a great series title, isn't it? Huh? I don't know who came up with that, but I think it's a good one. Um, <laughs> Book of Romans, first three chapters, we all have enough of this. Knowledge, that was last week. Of course, we could use more knowledge. We got enough knowledge of God to be responsible. We all have too much of this. Sin, that's this week. Next week, no one has enough of this, righteousness. And the final week, Josiah gets this one, lucky dog. Nobody saw this coming, grace. huh? He gets the fun one. I got the first three. So here we go. Topic number two. We all have too much of this, sin. You remember last week's passage? Paul said everybody has enough knowledge to be accountable to God. And with the knowledge that they have, the accountability that is given to them, many, many people, I think he would say the majority of people, turn away from that knowledge. And when they turn away from that knowledge, they get more and more foolish. And they turn to idolatry. And they start creating idols made with their own hands. Idols that look like them. And sometimes idols that look like animals and other beasts, crawling insects on the ground, and they worship them. And Paul basically is saying, Really? The revelation of God is clear, and you're going to worship a scorpion? you got to be kidding me. That's foolish. He reiterates that just slightly in verse 24, because we stopped at 23 last time. And then he launches into another description of the way in which when we refuse to be accountable to the revelation of God, the way in which we change. He says when you're not accountable to the revelation of God, not only do you find yourself turned over to idolatry, but you find yourself turned over to your own lusts. And then he moves to an example of that. And the example of that lust is unnatural activity that he calls homosexuality, men to men, women to women. Before I say any more, let me give you an image. Maybe it's a little corny. But it applies to what I said last week. When Paul speaks about the wrath of God on this particular occasion, he speaks about it differently other occasions, he's basically speaking about the wrath of God this way. The wrath of God is when God says to you, okay, have it your way. Do what you want. That's the wrath of God. Because you don't know what's in your best interest and you're harmful to yourself. But I'll let you go. Here's the image, corny as it might be. A very narrow hallway, imagine one. You're walking down this narrow hallway, and at the end of the hallway, oh my goodness, God's standing there. 
And at the end of the hallway, there's a split. And you can go this way or that way. And God stands at the split in the hallway and says, My friend, calls you by name. I think it's best that you take that path. You're created for that one. And you say to God, No, I don't want to take that path. I want to take the other path. And God says, Hang on a second while I move out of the way. Take your path. That's what Paul calls the wrath of God. Not following God. So today, he says, part of the way in which that is demonstrated, not following God, is following your own lusts. Now, this is a controversial passage. Granted. The passage, in large part, when you think about it, relates to homosexuality. However, the reality of this passage is that that's not the main theme. I'll get to that later. But it is controversial. And given our contemporary culture, it's important to address it. If it's not the major theme, why would I spend so much time on it? Because of where we live. I can't avoid it. So let's talk about it. When it comes to the description of homosexuality that Paul uses in Romans 1, he says that it is an unnatural desire and ought not to be pursued as a lifestyle. How do you interpret that? Um, there's another slide that's coming up here. This is going to seem really academic, okay? And it is. But I want you to see something in terms of descriptions of what this passage means. The first book, Robin Scroggs, um, a New Testament scholar, writes a book, The New Testament and Homosexuality. And in that book, he gives a broad understanding, very broad understanding of the culture surrounding this first century topic. He gives a broad understanding of the varieties of ways in which you might interpret it. And he comes to a conclusion that I don't come to. But it's a good book. Second book, John Boswell. Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality. In that book, John Boswell describes this passage basically in the following way. When Paul says that people move towards unnatural desires and they ought not to, what he means is that people who are naturally heterosexual move towards homosexual activity. And it's unnatural, and they should not do it. So Paul's not speaking about the activity of homosexuality entirely for all people. Okay? Richard B. Hayes, it's not hard to figure out, responds to John Boswell. And he says, relation, natural, and unnatural response to John Boswell. Basically what Richard B. Hayes says, another very detailed scholar, is that the first century culture from which Paul was speaking was a culture of conservative rabbinic, rabbinic teaching. In other words, Paul was a, a Jewish rabbi who happened to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And from that particular culture, it is easy to see and understand that Paul is speaking categorically about homosexual activity. He's not speaking from a, let's say, Greek perspective. And so, says Richard B. Hayes, he is categorically condemning the activity of homosexuality. There are other interpretations of this passage. Um, for instance, some say that Paul basically just was really not aware of the breadth and the depth of human love, that there is human love between same-sex people, and that love is actually legitimate. Paul was from the first century, and he just didn't get that. And if he were here today, he would say, it's okay. Other interpretations of this passage basically say that Paul was speaking about homosexual prostitution. We know homosexual prostitution was a common practice in the temples. That's what he's talking about, say these interpreters, not about homosexuality in general. Some interpreters say Paul was actually addressing pederasty, which is young men underage as the sexual lovers for adult men. He was saying that's not a good thing to do, but he wasn't speaking categorically to homosexuality. Some say this mandate that you hear from Paul is a culturally located mandate. In other words, it's for a time and a place, and we've moved beyond it. And if Paul were here today, he wouldn't say exactly the same thing. There you go. What do I think? Here's what I think. I think Paul was categorically condemning homosexual activity. Unequivocally. Unequivocally. I am aware that that position is the opposite of many people's opinion. And that position causes discomfort. Probably to many of you. I'm also aware that to make such a statement puts me in the category of a hater, which I am not. But I can only beg for your deference in that regard. I would like to tell you something about myself. Seven plus years of my graduate theological education, for those of you who know, just ignore it. Those of you who don't might be helped by this, are from Yale and Princeton. They're not evangelical institutions. And I lived in the context that was exactly the opposite of my opinion about these matters. And I worked closely with people who had the exact opposite opinion. And I worshipped in a context, local congregation, by the way, as a pastor, and as a student in chapel with people who had absolutely the opposite opinion of me concerning this matter. I want to say that because I want you to know that what I am speaking comes from a very diverse experience. 
And I also want you to know that I've been where you are. Okay? Not there to the same extent now. I don't work in a cubicle next to three people or four people or an entire office that thinks I'm a hater. Who thinks I'm improper in my approach to this subject matter. I get that. That's not my work environment. But it has been. And I also recognize that it may be your work environment. We can address that just a little bit later. But I wanted you to have that perspective. I also want you to acknowledge with me that this conversation and opinions that you may have about this conversation put you in categories to be hated from one side or the other. And the hatred goes both ways. Right? We've all experienced it. If you haven't as a student, you will. Some wacko out on Dun Meadow or in the middle of the parking lot outside the IU Memorial Union screaming that God hates gays and they're going to burn in hell. If you haven't seen that one yet, just hang on. It'll show up. It's hateful. It's hate speech. I would never say it. And if you ever say it in the name of this church, we may come to blows. Don't do that. Okay? On the other hand, the hate goes in the opposite direction as well. One professor at one of my alma maters, Yale University, gave a lecture about this topic. And his lecture about this topic, very scholarly, and conclusion was that Paul was saying homosexuality, categorically as an activity, was prohibited if you were a Christian. That professor came out to his car that evening to leave, and all four tires were slit. He just had a conversation. We live in that world, and I understand it. And so with this conversation, I enter it. I'm aware that some of you have an opposite opinion of this, that you believe the homosexual lifestyle is not inappropriate. And I want to say to you, many of you, I know you, we've had conversations, and I will not hate you, I love you. And I will embrace you as a brother or sister in Christ. We may differ. But I don't hate you. However, do me this favor. Don't ask me to officiate in a wedding for you that is a same-sex union. In good conscience, I can't do that. I will love you, but I can't do that. I will pray for you, but I can't do that. Nor can any other member of this pastoral staff do that. Let me be more explicit. If that unwritten policy ever changes, you need to initiate a pastoral search right away. As it relates to this topic further, um, I want to say this, the modern, I'll call them arguments, 
that suggests that Paul was offering a sort of moral, ethical, Greek culture critique of pedophilia or something else, I think are absolutely inadequate to the text itself. Paul was not offering that. He was not Greek. He couldn't have cared less about Greek ethics. He couldn't have cared less about Roman ethics. All he cared about, my friend, all he cared about was the Scripture and Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all he cared about. And when he spoke, he spoke from a first century Jewish rabbinic tradition. And the first century rabbinic tradition categorically without exception, condemned homosexual activity. He was speaking from that vantage point. Also, I'm not inclined to suggest that the author of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 needs to be lectured by me or modern culture on the definition of love. The most eloquent prose ever penned about love is penned by Paul. And it's the same person who said homosexual activity is not the way you ought to live. Furthermore, I don't believe that Paul needed to be enlightened. Because, my friends, he lived in a world that was far more in the direction of acceptance of all kinds of sexuality than we do. We have no idea how accepting a culture it was. Many historians say at least 15 of the known Roman emperors were openly homosexual. Furthermore, Nero Nero, at the time of Paul, was a Roman emperor who had a very young boy brought into his court to have a love relationship with, and eventually he sponsored a marriage with this young boy in the presence of his wife and in the presence of other wives that he had. And Nero wore the white veil and presented himself as the bride. Paul did not need for us to help him to understand the vast expanse of this subject. Just quickly, if the Roman emperor example were applied to us today, all our United States presidents would be openly gay all the way back to almost the beginning of the 20th century. There's a context. So Paul lived in a different world, a far more excessive world, and he doesn't need our help in understanding it. From that vantage point, he suggested that homosexual activity for the Christian is not appropriate. Now, having said that, let me say this. What is the passage not about? Okay? What is it not about? First of all, I said it's not exclusively about homosexuality. In spite of the fact that I'm spending all this time on it, I have to. Okay? Here's what it's not about. 
The passage has nothing to do with civil order or some kind of constitutional mandate for the protection of marriage. Nothing like that. If Paul were to listen in to our conversations that are frequently called culture wars right now, he would just simply scratch his head. What are you people talking about? He wouldn't understand it at all. Because for Paul, he lived a parallel life in an unchristian environment. And he didn't expect his government or any other, other government to conform to his particular ethical standards. He was called to follow Jesus Christ. And that was thoroughly radical and terribly minority. This passage, I don't believe, is in any way a warning or a critique of the decline of the Roman Empire. That has nothing to do with it either. As a matter of fact, Paul's exclusive statement about government probably is best summarized in Romans chapter 15. You know what it is? Obey the government. End of sentence. That's all he said about the government. Why? Because he really didn't care about secular government. Furthermore, he was not interested in dictating to others outside the church what their morals ought to be. For instance, how about 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Let me just read just a short portion of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When he's talking about immorality, he says this, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? <laughs> Are you not the judge to those inside? God will judge those outside. I'm not even talking about culture. I'm talking about us, says Paul who claim to be Christ followers. Something else that this, uh, this, this passage is not about or not stating. I see nothing in this passage or in any other part of the scripture that suggests that homosexuality is worse than any other sin. As a matter of fact, Paul happened to use this illustration because it was the most obvious illustration in a Greek-Roman culture. Everybody knew about it. So he used it. He could have used a list of another group of sins. Had he chosen to. But he used this one. Another thing this uh, passage is not about. It's not a suggestion that homosexual inclinations or desires are condemned. He doesn't say that. He doesn't mean that. Why? Because we all have desires that are improper. This one doesn't happen to be mine. I get a bunch more. I am so glad the scriptures don't condemn my desires. They counsel me to direct my desires in worship to God. They don't condemn it. And as a part of that, it's clear to me, at least, that it's possible that some people are born with a proclivity to same-sex attraction. I see no reason 
to think otherwise. Paul's not condemning that either. Nor is he giving us a promise in this passage, or do I think anywhere else, that your desire or your inclination can somehow be cured. A great friend of mine was a part of our connection ministry for four years while in college. This guy was articulate, he was funny, and he was over-the-top brilliant. He could make me feel silly when he was 19. That particular individual happened also to be a part of our ministry team for Connection, a paid ministry intern at ECC. And he was openly gay. Not practicing, but openly gay. He would let you know or anyone else know that his internal desires were for the same sex. He graduated here, went on to seminary, and now serves in a church. And everywhere he goes, people know his story. If you were to walk up to him and say to him, so have you gotten over it yet? I don't know whether he would just smile or slap you. If I were him and I'm not, you know my, what my response would be to you? Have you gotten over your attraction for other women since you've been married? Did you never struggle again? And whoever that was that asked, if they were honest, they'd be in the same category as my friend. We all have incredible desires that move us in the direction that God said is our best for us. And some of those desires never go away. For some people, they do. For others, they don't. And I would never, nor would any member of this church staff ever, counsel someone that you can get over it. I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it's rational. So what is this passage about? Well, it's about our sin nature. It's not really about homosexuality. It's about our turned inwardness. Is it about our inability to perfectly choose God? It's about our tendency to choose self. This passage really is about Christian discipleship, put another way. That's why I'm not inclined to sponsor seminars that deal with the subject. To me, this is a Christian discipleship conversation. And I can't tell you how many pastoral conversations I have about this subject. And the rest of us as well. That's where the subject belongs for the most part. As a matter of fact, I would never preach about the subject unless it was here. Because it's here I preach. 
And there's better places to address it. And we have, as a matter of fact, an entire semester-long conversation about this one topic. Very appropriately placed. It's about Christian discipleship. It's about our tendency to turn away from God. And you know what's interesting about it? It's when we look at this passage, we do what I just did, and I had to. We use this passage to focus on one thing. Did you notice that there are 20 sins listed and only one of them is homosexuality? Did you also notice what Paul says at the end of the chapter, which is an arbitrary division? We know, right? It's a letter. When he lists the rest of those sins, sins that all of us can, can associate ourselves with, he says to the people who are listening, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. As you condemn the other, it is self-condemnation. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? What same things? Any of those things. What same things? The ones all of you do. Then he goes on to say this. And this is really the point of the passage. Or do you, when you judge others, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? All of you, he says, you got a lot of sins. All of you are freely offered grace. You know what grace looks like? The opportunity to repent of your sins and turn to me. Man, that's a good news, isn't it? I want to quote right here at the end a, a person that might not come up in a sermon very often skeptic atheist named Voltaire. You know what Voltaire said one time? He said, I don't worry about it. God will forgive, that's his business. Kind of sounds good, but he had it wrong. He just meant that God's like the doting grandfather that can't say no. God's a person who can't judge if he wanted to. All he can do is forgive. The biblical notion of forgiveness and grace and mercy is inseparably linked from judgment. Forgiveness, grace, and mercy is there because judgment is there. You judge yourself with your own turned inwardness and God offers you grace and forgiveness and the pathway to it is repentance 
Put it another way, the Christian life is all about grace and repentance. And it should be exercised daily. Grace to others because God's given it to us. And repentance as the pathway to life. That might not sound like good news at the outset, but the more you think about it, it's incredibly good news. Let's pray. Lord, we're really grateful um, for your word. Uh, we're grateful that you challenge not just the, the, the dominant culture around us, but more importantly, that you challenge us. And we're grateful that you've given us this space to address the issues that you have given us to address without fear or favor. We thank you, Lord, that um, we can disagree about any number of topics and still love one another. And we thank you, Lord, for the people that we work with who have an opposite perspective to ours and who may or may not know Jesus. We pray that our life will just be a glow of the grace and the forgiveness of God that we will be so grateful for what you have done for us that our gratitude would spill over into the lives of others. Not condemnation, but, but grace. Lord, we live um, in a difficult world, but it's no different than any other period in history because the world's always been difficult. We find ourselves increasingly in the minority, but we don't really have any idea what being in the minority is all about, the way the early Christians did. And we remember that your church has not only survived, but it's thrived. And we're grateful that you allow us to be a part of it. We're so eager to embrace the transforming truth and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we take it in, may we distribute it. And please be with us. In your name we pray. Amen.